right, turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. I had every intention of preaching Judges 17 and 18, but looked at this, the more I looked at this, I realized I just need to stop after 17. So we'll just keep moving eventually and get to 18 and 19 and 20 and, and the rest. But this morning we're looking specifically at Judges chapter 17. I'll read the text as we go, and it's, it's found on page 216 of the Pew Bible in front of you as well. I'll read the text as we go. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, now as we open up your word, we ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive it. We ask that you would convict us of sin and lead us in the way of righteousness and lead us toward Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. It was often stated in our family ministry classes and in conferences, and you've probably even heard this similar thing as well, that the corruption of society had its beginnings in the home and in the lives of individuals. One often acknowledges, and I think rightly so, that if you want to change the culture and society, if you want to make a difference in the culture and society, then one must begin by focusing on each individual and the home and the family. And certainly this is true in some sense, we even see this in, uh, in our pattern in the text this morning. We see that religious corruption or false religion have taken root within individuals and the family and would eventually lead towards society in chapter 18. Corruption begins with Micah. Corruption will begin with Micah and his family. And then it will spread until it finally spreads into an entire tribe in Israel. So what I want to do this morning is consider three signs or three evidences that religious corruption or false religion have infiltrated our individual lives, our family life, or the life of the church. So three signs, three evidences that religious corruption has infiltrated our lives as individuals, as a family, or even as a church so that we can root these out. Right? So, that, so that we can put Christ back on his rightful throne of our lives. So that Christ would be king of our individual lives, our family lives, and the life of the church. So that we can make a difference in our society and in those that we have areas of influence over. So first, first religious corruption has become evident in our lives when we mix our devotion to the Lord with idolatry. When our commitment to Christ is now blended with the culture around us, then our relationship with Christ has been corrupted. We see this in verses 1 through 5. So look with me at verses 1 through 5. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. 
So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So in this episode, we're introduced to a man from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name is Micah, which means, who is like the Lord? Who is like God? And in this scene, Micah has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother, which, by the way, even as you recall from last week, this is a lot of money. In the next scene, Micah is going to give this Levite man, a Levite man, an annual salary, get this, of 10 pieces of silver. Annual salary, 10 pieces of silver, and he's stolen 1,100 pieces of silver. The Levite, which we will see, is content with that. So stealing 1,100 pieces of silver is a ton of money. And we see here that Micah's mother had placed a curse upon the thief. So Micah, perhaps out of fear that he would be cursed, confesses to his mom that he had stolen the money. He's the thief. And she seems to respond with thankfulness as she calls upon the Lord to bless her son. There is a sense here in which Micah's mother displays a devotion to the Lord. Although it's mixed with blessings and curses, it's mixed with the pagan culture that is around them, and things continue to move south. Notice the second part of verse 3. He restores the 1,100 pieces of silver, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. All right, good. She's dedicating it to the Lord. But then she adds, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So Micah, Micah's mother, perhaps thankful of her son's honesty and thankful for receiving this money back, dedicates it to the Lord for the purpose of making her son a carved image. Which was the very thing that God's people were commanded not to do after being delivered out of Egypt. Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Right? Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 27, 15 says this. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord. A thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. So she takes 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith and to make a carved image and a metal image. And it was placed in the house of Micah. Now what happened to the rest of the money? Just 200, right? What, what happened to the 900? We're not sure. So we have greed. We have idolatry. We have blessing and cursing coming from the same mouth. And we have pagan culture mixed with some understanding of the Lord. Religious corruption is clearly evident in the home, even though she displays good intentions. 
She dedicates part of the money to the Lord, but it is for the purpose of making an idol for her son. An act of devotion to God and yet still sinful. Which teaches us here that good intentions are insufficient if we violate God's word. No matter how sincere a person may be in their expression of worship, if it contradicts scripture, it's corrupt. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Which is why it is so important that we do not neglect God's word for the sake of experience. There is a trend in worship services today, I don't know if you're familiar with this, there's a trend happening in worship services today that they focus now solely on experience. They want to draw us in. They're trying to draw us into an emotional experience without any mention of the death of Christ, without any mention of sin or repentance. God's word is being set aside for the purpose of drawing, into, drawing us into some experience. When we seek to devote ourselves to the Lord at the expense of his word, no matter how sincere, we are no longer, no longer worshiping him or honoring him. And this wasn't just the case with Micah's mother. Look at, look at Micah himself, verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Micah has a house of gods. He makes a priestly garment, and he ordains one of his sons to be a priest. And now he has added to his house a carved image, which is all clearly violating God's word. The one whose name means who is like God, who is like the Lord, has a house of gods. He has placed his gods alongside the worship of God. He's taken the culture around him and the devotion of the Lord and he's blended them together. And he doesn't even know it. Micah intends to worship the Lord with his idols, just as Aaron and Israel sought to do so in, when they made the golden calf back in Exodus 32. And to think that God would be pleased by this reveals the corruption of sin in the lives of God's people and in the home. So how about us? How about us? In what areas have we blended the ways of the culture? This is something we can ask ourselves, right? In what ways, in what areas have we blended the culture with the word, with Christ, and our relationship to him? Because when we read this, we might recognize that we aren't making idols, right? I'm not making any image, and I'm not bowing down to some image. But what we all should recognize is that we have idols in our hearts. We have all things in our lives that we worship in the place of God. Because an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It is anything that is so essential to your life that if you were to lose it, 
your life would lose meaning and purpose. So, we can begin to identify our idols by asking ourselves these questions. What do I want so much that I am willing to sin to get it or sin if I don't? What occupies my mind when I have nothing else to think about? What is my life centered around? While I was in seminary and working at Target, one of, one of the idols in my heart became evident as I spent time examining the Word, examining my own life in light of God's Word. I noticed that my deep idol, okay, so my deep idol was seeking approval or recognition or praise from man. I began to realize that I put hard work into my job, wanted to get good grades in school, and I feared doing certain things because I wanted praise and approval from my bosses, from my coworkers, and even my professors. You know what's fascinating about that? All those things that I did were good things, right? Worked hard. I, I did well at my job. I wanted to do my job the best, better than anyone else. So I worked hard at my job and in school. But it became evident to me that when I didn't get praise or recognition, that I was working to please man and not God. Someone else might do the same things, right? Work hard at your job or school. Maybe it's not for praise. It might be for something else. It might be control or, or comfort or success. Whatever the case might be, whatever idols that you have in your own life, as you examine your own heart in light of God's word, these idols lead to a half-hearted devotion to the Lord, which doesn't please him. Second, second, religious corruption has become evident in our lives when we pursue our own interests at the expense of God's word. Look with me at verses 7 through 13. We'll come back to verse 6 at my final point, but I want to draw your, atten- draw your attention to verses 7 through 13. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. Verse 10, And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. 
the religious corruption continues here as, as we encounter this Levite man who was sojourning from Bethlehem in Judah. As you may know, the Levites were not allotted, were not given an allotted inheritance, for the Lord was their inheritance. And the Levites were chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to stand and minister in, in the name of the Lord. The priests came from this family. And the place that the Levite should dwell would be the place that the Lord would choose. So here's this Levite man a, 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 from Bethlehem in Judah, sojourning to, where, a, to a place where he can find a place to dwell. So he, jo- so he journeys off and arrives at Micah's house. Verse 9, And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. So here we are. Micah Micah offers his place to the young man, and Micah will provide for his needs, and the young man will be a father and a priest to him. And the young man is content to stay with Micah. So they, they work out a deal, and both men seem to benefit from this transaction But the problem is this, that even though both men are content with their living situation, we again see corruption and a violation of God's word in both of them. First, the Levite sojourned to any place where he could find a place to dwell, rather than seeking what the Lord would have him do. And where the Lord would have him go, he pursues his own interest. And he accepts a position as a private priest in the house of Micah. Why? Because Micah provides for him a place to stay, and he provides income for him. Instead of being a spiritual leader and serving as a representative before God, the Levite is content to dwell in a house full of idolatry. He will serve as Micah's priest as long as it benefits him. So he's materialistic. He's self-seeking. Only in it for his personal gain. Now jump ahead. Jump ahead to, to chapter 18, verse 19. The story will continue even in the next chapter. Okay, We're going to find out what's going to happen with these men. Chapter 18, verse 19, the the Levite is confronted by the Danites, and they ask him to become their priest. Now, in the middle of verse 19, we read this. Is it better for you, here's what they're, they're asking, right? Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? Verse 20, and the priest's heart was glad He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. What was better for the Levite was to do what advanced his own career. Without any consideration of what God would have him do. Driven by the pursuit of materialism and greed. Driven by the pursuit of what was best for him. The Levite decides to leave. Religious corruption becomes evident when we pursue our own interests at the expense of obeying God's word. 
And this is evident here with Micah as well. After Micah ordains the Levite as his priest, notice what he says back in chapter 17, verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Micah had ordained his son as a priest, but now he has a Levite as his priest who will minister to God on his behalf. And so with great confidence and boldness, he declares that God will surely bless him. I mean, look at, look at the success he's already had. He's received a blessing from his mom when he could have received a curse. And now a Levite just happens to show up at his house. Success. And perhaps in his mind, he could chalk this up as luck. I'm just lucky there. He probably believed in luck, by the way. But now, the Levite is willing to be his priest. Certainly the Lord will prosper me. That's, that's what he's thinking. I have a Levite as priest. Micah's primary concern, that's what I want you to notice, his primary concern is what will prosper him and not what brings glory to God. Micah is convinced that he will prosper because he has the right man in place, even though he is living in complete rebellion against God. And this was the lesson for Israel as well at this time. They thought that God would prosper them. They thought that God would give them their inheritance, even though they disobeyed his word. They thought that they would receive a blessing from the Lord, even though they had compromised with the world around them. So the lesson for us is this. Our primary concern, our primary concern should not be what prospers us, but what brings glory to God. A prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. God cannot and he will not be manipulated by people for our own benefit. So when we make decisions, we should pursue God's will, not our own. Just as Jesus came to do the Father's will, he suffered in our place so that by faith in him, we receive a future inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. And that is where our treasure is, and that's where our hearts should be as well, not on the things of this world. Third and finally, third and finally, religious corruption has become evident in our lives when we forsake God as our king and as we seek to do what's right in our own eyes. So look with me now back in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now jump down to the first part of 18, 18.1. In those days... 
there was no king in Israel. One of the reasons that I want to draw your attention to these verses last is because these verses serve as a hinge which holds the story together, right? And they also serve to highlight the remedy of religious and spiritual corruption in our own individual lives, in the lives of our home, and in the lives of the church. In these verses, we understand what the author is communicating, right? He's communicating the timing of the book. He's certainly doing that, isn't he? Right? The God's people had entered the promised land under Joshua. Now they're entering, they've entered the land. There's no king in Israel. So this is before there had been any king. It's during the days of the judges. So certainly the, the timing of the book is, is clear. A king would come in due time. But I think more importantly, I think what the author is doing by placing verse 6 where he does, he is communicating that part of the reason of Micah's and his mother's and the Levite's corruption is due to the fact that there is no king. We've seen a similar phrase already with, with Samson in chapter 14. Samson sees a Philistine woman and demands of his father, do you remember what he demanded of his father? Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And then in 14.7, Judges 14.7, then Samson went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So also here, Micah and his mother and the Levite are doing what is right in their own eyes. They decide what is right and wrong. No one else. Moral relativism. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what I want. Not anyone else. The author is also communicating here that Micah and his mother and the Levite are not the exception but the rule, right? They're not the exception within Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If Israel had a king, had they received God as their king and Lord and not forsaken him, this sort of corruption and relativism wouldn't happen. The very mention that there is no king displays their need for a king and their need for God to be king over them, for God to be at the center of their lives. If Israel had sought God as their king and Lord, they would have done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You see? And certainly this is true for us as well, isn't it? The idols of our hearts, right? We, we identify idols in our own lives. The idols of our heart, the things that we've placed at the center of our lives must be replaced by Christ. One of the, the joys of watching little children is that we can learn a lot about the Christian life from them. We had the privilege of seeing this with little Gregory yesterday, which I don't think he's here. 
when little children, you've seen this, if you've seen little children, right? When they grab a hold of an object, right? So they grab a hold of whatever object that is and hold tightly to it and they've got a death grip on it, right? We've seen this, haven't we? How do you get it out of their hand? There's at least two ways, right? You can either pry open their hand, right? Pull it open on them and get that thing out of their hand. And then what do they do? They throw a fit and they scream and yell and, and have a hard time with it. It's one way to do it. And sometimes I think the Lord has to do that with us. Or you place before them something far more superior and excellent. Something that satisfies the longing of their hearts. What do they do? When they see it, they've got this thing that they have in their hand, right? And they see something far better in front of them. What do they do? Oh, they're up. Grab a hold of this. Isn't that how our lives work? If you want God to remove the idols from your own life that you've identified, it must be replaced. We must replace it by putting Christ back in his rightful place and see him as superior, see him as excellent, see him as the only one who can satisfy the longings of our heart. The only remedy to our sin, to our rebellion, to our idolatry is found in King Jesus. The only remedy to our half-hearted devotion the only remedy to our greed, the only remedy to our pursuit of doing what's right in our own eyes is Christ. By placing him at the center of our lives. Jesus is far more superior. He is far more excellent than any idol that we have. We should seek to do what honors him. And not what brings us glory. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, for our, our idolatry, for our rebellion. And on the third day, he rose again victorious over sin and death and Satan. So that by faith in him, we might be set free to worship and serve Christ for all eternity. And because of Christ's death, we can now live lives that please Him. So that it becomes evident in our homes, in our individual lives, in our culture, that there is a genuine love and devotion for Christ, which seeks to do what is right in God's eyes. So, as we conclude, may we then seek to make a difference in our world for Christ. And as we seek to do so, might it begin in our own lives, right? We look at the world around us, it's awful. Might it begin in our own individual lives, right? As we place Christ at the center, might it begin in the lives of our homes, with our own families, that Christ would be the center, and might it continue, and I know it's continuing here, might it continue in the life of the church. 
that Christ would be the center. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that King Jesus has come and that he rules over us. We acknowledge our own idols. We acknowledge how often we place them before you because we think that they satisfy. But we recognize it doesn't. And we ask that your spirit would work in us to see Jesus as more and more beautiful. That we would see Jesus as worthy of our worship and praise. And that we would hold fast to him and cast down our idols. So we ask that Jesus would be the center of our individual lives, of of the lives of our homes, that it might become evident to those around us that Jesus is worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.